Hello, everybody. Father Kelly here. Happy Feast of St. Stephen. That's the guy in the song about St. Wenceslas on the Feast of Stephen. That's today, December 26th, the day after Christmas. I do want to get back. I do want to talk about St. Stephen. But first, I, I want to give my homily from my Christmas homily, uh, primarily the one from the Christmas vigil. So there's a whole lot of masses for Christmas, it turns out. There's the vigil mass, which is what most people probably go to. There's Mass during the night, depends on what book you're in, the lectionary that Father uses, you know, at the altar, that's, or, sorry, not lectionary, my goodness, the Roman Missal that Father uses at the altar and things, it just calls it Mass during the night, but, like, the breviary and some other books call it Midnight Mass or Mass at Midnight, so, I don't know, interesting side notes. If you're going by just the Roman Missal and, you know, your parish doesn't have mid quote midnight mass at midnight technically speaking according to the roman missal that we use at mass it's not midnight mass but it's obviously called that in most places nothing wrong with it being at midnight just a sidebar um that according to sort of one of the main books it's not actually called midnight mass it's just called mass during the night backing up so there's vigil mass mass during the night mass at dawn is one of the options Unless you're in a monastery, probably nobody ever gets that. Or unless you have a lot of priests at your parish and and or a big parish uh, where you, well, let's be honest, where somebody's, some priest has the energy to get up at dawn and have mass. I'm sure it's very beautiful. The, uh, the, pr- the readings and the prayers are particular to each of these masses. They each have their own. So surely the readings and prayers for mass at dawn are wonderful and beautiful, but... I bet almost nobody ever gets that, again, unless you're in a monastery. So if you'd like to have Mass at dawn at your parish sometime, pray for vocations, and then maybe we can have more priests and then have Mass at dawn. I'd like to do it someday, but as it is, with just me, it ain't going to happen, because there's just not enough energy in the body for that kind of thing. So anyways, mass, the Vigil Mass, Mass during the night, Mass at dawn, and then there is also the mass during the day. So anytime, you know, from 8 a.m. onwards on Christmas Day, you could do uh, mass during the day. So these readings, or this homily rather, is written for the particular readings and prayers for the vigil mass. So that's from Isaiah, talking about, uh, For Zion's sake I will not be silent. Uh, you shall be called no longer desolate, but my delight. And then uh, Saint uh, in the second reading, St. Paul is in the book of Acts. He's talking about the replacement of the house of Saul, King Saul over Israel with the house of David. And then the gospel is uh, the genealogy of Jesus, but then uh, concludes with the dialogue between Joseph and the angel about uh, Joseph is hears about Mary's pregnancy and is uh, planning to separate from her. But then the angel says to comes to him and says, no, don't do that. Do take her into her home. And so we'll focus on all of those things, but uh, that's the context for this homily. As soon as I can find it on my computer again. Ah, okay. So I closed it on accident a minute ago. Hold on. Here we go. All right. There it is. Christmas homily for the Vigil Mass. Have you ever seen a battleship? Even the old ones are immense, and almost beyond our understandable human scale. For example, the USS Oklahoma, 
built way back in 1912, was almost 100 feet wide, 600 feet long, and weighed 28,000 tons. Newer battleships, of course, have gotten even bigger and heavier. The largest battleship in the usual sense that I saw was um, almost 1,000 feet long and 50,000 tons. And if you include things like cruise ships and cargo ships, uh, ships are even bigger these days. On the water, they are immense. But if you were to see one, you know, somehow sat upon the streets of your local town, it would be, it would seem absolutely impossibly huge and beyond comprehension. But think about another kind of ship that is a church. Look at the ceiling of a church. Um, unless it's a very strange architecture, uh, most of them, if you think about it, look like the bottom inside of the ship, inside of a ship. In fact, the part in which the people sit is called the nave. Navus is literally the Latin word for ship. So the major public part of the church is literally called a ship because it is. That, that's what the shape is like. And sometimes these churches, these church ships, if you will, are as big as the biggest battleships. So old St. Peter's Basilica, the one that existed before the current St. Peter's, it was there from the 4th century to the 16th century. It was over 700 feet long, if you include the courtyard out front, 400 feet wide, and could have, could have held three to 4,000 people. It was immense, even from today's standards, and would have been even more so 1,600 years ago when it was built. Yet these big, old churches have something in common with big old ships from which they borrow part of their name. They occasionally get destroyed and have to be replaced. In 1941, the USS Oklahoma was at rest in Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attack happened, and she was sunk and almost completely destroyed. She rolled over onto the seafloor in the harbor, and by the time she was raised, was too damaged to be restored. Likewise, the old St. Peter's Basilica, built in the 4th century, though not specifically attacked in war, except in minor little ways, had suffered the damage of 16 centuries of use. Pope Julius II, the Pope at the time, had greatly desired to fix it, but the damage was damage and disrepair were too great. It could not be saved. The battleship Oklahoma was decommissioned to make way for newer and better ships. And likewise, Old St. Peter's was disassembled and torn down to make way for the newer and better St. Peter, Peter's Basilica that we know today. Thinking specifically of the church, it was sad for those of the time, I'm sure, to see the old St. Peter's Basilica be torn down. But it is undeniable that what was built afterwards, the Renaissance masterpiece of Bermonte, Michelangelo, Maderno, and Bernini, is far superior. And we can rest assured that the best remaining artwork and pieces of architecture were preserved from the old building. Many beautiful statues and altarpieces, mosaics, frescoes, and columns were preserved and can be seen to this day. All was not lost, and much was improved. This process of destruction and rebirth, moving on to what is better while keeping what is good, this is our faith and the life of the church. This is the reason that Christ came into the world. Before the coming of Christ, the people of God, and in fact all peoples of the world, were in a state like a crumbling basilica or a sunken battleship, existing, but barely and not very well. In only a few places was there the worship of the one true God, but even those who worshipped were bound by system of law that, while it preserved them in some kind of faith, did not yet prepare them for eternal life. 
God gave them good things in the earthly life if they were faithful, but the doors of heaven were not yet open. Yet they looked forward to the destruction of what was then current and the giving and building of something better and more profound. Isaiah in the first reading says, Nations shall behold your vindication, and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, pronounced by the mouth of the Lord. You shall be a glorious crown in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem held by your God. No more shall people call you forsaken, or your land desolate, but you shall be called my delight. This vindication is a coming of something new. It is not just a polishing of the old laws. It is not a slight modification. It is a whole new relationship that the people will have with their God. No longer will they be the people who must follow his laws because he says they must. They will become a people whom God treats as his beloved and whom and who want to follow his directions because they know that they will be made happy and receive eternal life. This is not the old, improved, but something incredibly new. Yet, what was good in the old is still preserved. After the time of the, of the judges, the people of Israel demanded that God give them an earthly king. They wanted to be like the other nations. The Lord was their king, but he relented and gave them Saul to be their earthly king. This is what Paul is talking about in the synagogue in the second reading. They had Saul as a king, and things were okay. But Saul had many problems, too. He was prideful and arrogant. He did some good for the people, but they did not benefit greatly. They had a king, but much about his kingdom was unstable and shifting. But then God did something to prefigure what he would do in a more real way in the future. He tore down the kingship of Saul and gave it to David. It was not a passing of kingship within the same family. David was not Saul's son. No, it was a whole wholesale restart, a brand new beginning. The house of Saul was over and rejected. The entirely new house of David began and was elevated. The Lord was hinting here at the much greater change, much greater kingdom change, he would affect in the future. It is from this new house that the Savior would come. And so now it has. When Christ the Lord is born into the world as we celebrate on this Christmas solemnity, God carried out to the full the start of something entirely new. No longer would the people have only a distant relationship with God, mediated only through temple sacrifice and the scattered words of prophets. No, now God would be dwelling among them and having an intimacy with them that was never known before. This was the first salvo in the battle that would shortly see the gates of heaven thrown open to all the worthy souls who had been waiting for this very change. This was no mild restructuring of the old law of the old covenant. No, this was wholesale something new. It was not the patching of walls and re-cementing of bricks on the old St. Peter's Basilica. No, it was a taking down and a setting aside of all that was old, yet still remembering and keeping what was good. Liturgy was kept. A relationship with God was kept. Sacrifice was kept. Love was kept. Charity was kept. But all of these things were used in a new and incredible way. God was no longer a distant idea, experienced by a few, but came to live and dwell among us, as near as any of our neighbors, as close as a mother to the child of her very womb. This is the new covenant and the new promise of which we are a part. So far as we are faithful Christians, we partake of this new work of the Lord. Yet we still need some help. Though you may visit the new St. Peter's Basilica today, 
built totally new in the place of the old one, it would, be, it would be better if you had a tour guide to show you around instead of just going alone. Otherwise, there is much that you would miss and fail to understand. Not that it would do you no good, but to have a guide is better. And so, though we could not possibly complain of any lack of a gift when we have received the very God incarnate who came to be in the womb of the Blessed Mother and this very evening is born to the world, still, God saw fit to give us a guide, many, many guides really, but I want to focus on one, St. Joseph. In the Gospel today, we, have, we encounter the familiar, yet somewhat obscure and perhaps confusing passage of what happened when he learned of Mary's pregnancy. It says, Since he was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to shame, he decided to divorce her quietly. Yet to many this is a troubling passage, and may seem especially so as I am proposing him as our model and guide for this new gift from God, the birth of his son. But to understand why this intention of St. Joseph is not a problem, in fact it's a very good thing, we have to invert the normal understanding, which does actually not make sense, and see what is actually there. Did Joseph want to leave Mary because he doubted her fidelity? Absolutely not. In all normal circumstances, that would make him a reasonable man, but it hardly seems right for someone whom Scripture specifically describes as righteous. Rather, consider this. St. Joseph knew of Mary's profound holiness and purity. How could he not? So, when she is learned to be with child, his only other recourse then, knowing that adultery is impossible because of her virtue, would be to presume that something divine is at work. Now, we wouldn't jump, our thoughts don't go there necessarily, but remember, every Jew knew that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, and Joseph also knowing the holiness of his, of his spouse, realizes that this is the very thing that is happening. His thought to leave her is not to abandon her whom he thinks is adulterous, but to excuse himself from the awesome presence of God in which he, as a sinner, knows he is not worthy to be. Who is he, he might say, you know, who am I, sinner that I am, to be an earthly father to the Son of God? Yet the angel affirms that this indeed is his role, because he is in fact a man of virtue and humility, a man of sacrifice and love. Though he is not without sin, like his wife and adopted son, he is a man perfectly fit as an example for us of the new covenant that comes into the world with Christ. Joseph is our guide in this new church. He is the perfect Christian, in a way, in this new creation of God living among his people. His obedience shows us the way. And this is the way, inaugurated at Christmas, the new relationship with God. It is marked with love and charity, authenticity and sacrifice, humility and obedience. These are the virtues that St. Joseph lived and that all the saints lived because they are the virtues that Christ lived, and they are for us to live too. The Old Testament was not bad. It was the right thing for the people at that time. But now we have been given the new covenant, the new testament, because it is the time for us to begin to be prepared for the second coming of Christ. And that is the point of it all. We joyfully and authentically welcome Christ at his first coming, at Christmas, as a preparation for standing before him at his second coming and our final judgment. This is the meaning of the church and all that she does. All her prayers and celebrations, sacraments and songs, 
laws and liturgies are for us to prepare for us for our meeting someday with Christ at the end. This beginning now, 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, is the start of the final preparation for the final purpose, to make us ready to stand before our God. Christ is coming. He is now here. A new thing has begun. Let us use it well to merit to stand before him when he comes as our judge. So after that vigil homily, there was, of course, the other liturgies of the, of the Christmas day itself. And so now on this feast of St. Stephen, we are tempted to think Christmas is over. Oh, no, 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 it is not. We're only just beginning. So while we celebrate St. Stephen today, we are still in the what's called the octave of Christmas. Now, just this morning in scripture, I happened to be reading from first book of Kings chapter eight, and it is where Solomon dedicates the newly built temple. And so, uh, there hasn't been a temple before. Um, I think we had this, in the, we had this part of this in the reading. Oh yeah. We had this, I think last Sunday in the readings where St. or St. Joseph, uh, King David says to, to God through Nathan, the prophet, I'd like to build a temple for you. Now God responds, no, I'm going to build a house for you. Um, but as I explained in the homily, he doesn't mean don't build me a house. He just means not yet. And the uppercase house of David is more important in the moment. But eventually, uh, Solomon, David's son, does build the house. And it's very beautiful, covered in gold, carvings, all the all the best they could do at that time. And so today, in what I happened to read, they dedicated this new temple. And it happened to be, not happened to be, it was an eight-day celebration, and it occurred to me, that's where we get octaves. Um, I think this isn't the only eight-day celebration in Scripture by any means, but it's where the church gets the idea of an octave. And so there was this dedication of the temple, and the whole thing lasted eight days. Well, part of the dedication of the temple is that they bring the Ark of the Covenant, that is, the seat of the presence of God, into the temple. And that's, of course, the most solemn part. Well, then it occurred to me, that is what Christmas is. So, at Christmas, God comes into his temple. That is, he becomes incarnate, he takes, a, he takes a body, he becomes born to the world that he created. So, God himself comes into his temple, just like in this first book of Kings chapter 8. God, as in the presence in the Ark of the Covenant, comes into the newly built temple. And so the celebration of the dedicated temple that lasts eight days is a perfect analogy to what happens at Christmas, which we also celebrate for eight days. And so while December 25th is passed, the Christmas solemnity goes on for seven more days. So really, all eight of these days are as important as the day itself. So it is literally Christmas Day still. It's also the Feast of St. Stephen. But it's literally Christmas Day still, and that should, well, that should affect everything that we do. We can, um, you know, oftentimes we think that, well, uh, Christmas is over, let's move on. But no, no, no. Christmas is still going. Now, I don't mean you have to, like, open presents every day, and, you know, a certain bit of practicality has to take place. Um, 
I'm big about not working on Sundays. Um, you know, you have to do some things on Sundays, but you really should try and avoid any unnecessary labor on Sundays. Um, I even like to mean, take that to mean that, uh, you know, try not to go out to eat even on Sundays because you're making somebody else work, you know, buy groceries on Saturday so you can eat at home on Sunday. Um, but if we're going to have eight days of solemnities, we can't say don't work at all. But really this time, especially this octave of Christmas, um, you know, in moderation, in prudence, uh, it is still a very fitting time to have Christmas celebrations with family and friends, uh, to keep that spirit going. Um, don't rush back to work if you can possibly avoid it, even if, you know, do try and avoid work actually at this point. Um, usually I wouldn't counsel that, of course, but um, during this octave of Christmas, it is still in all literal ways in the church's eyes, Christmas day itself. So, um, you know, if you don't want to go back to work yet, let that be a motivation of, no, I'm, don't just be lazy, of course, but to properly celebrate Christmas is to keep our minds on this day that it truly still is, and not just to go back to work today like it's a normal, like, like it's a normal day. Now, it happens to be Saturday and tomorrow's Sunday, so maybe that's not uh, quite the thing, it won't be too much of a temptation, but even when we come to Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, it's still Christmas Day. So, again, while some things must be done, I understand that. Um, you know, we Few of us have the means or the resources just to totally be on religious vacation for the next six days. Do keep that in mind that um, while some things need to be done, we are not back to normal uh, working times by any means. In this octave, though, we do have the the curious thing of celebrating other days while still having the main day. So it is still Christmas, as I keep saying, but we also have the Feast of St. Stephen, the first martyr. And it's always fascinating to me how the church uh, ties that in, you know, connects St. Stephen to this celebration of Christmas. Uh, because, as I referenced in the homily, uh, all of our Christmas preparations are really a looking forward to the ending of our own lives and the final judgment. It, we, Christ comes so that we can be prepared for our end. And as is always usual, the church uh, gives us beautiful prayers and words that help us to express this. And one of my favorite prayers comes up on this, on this morning. It's in the invitatory for the Office of Readings. And it says, Come, let us worship the newborn Christ, who has given the glorious crown to St. Stephen. I'll read that again. Come, let us worship the newborn Christ who has given the glorious crown to St. Stephen. So yesterday we had the nativity of the Lord. He was born of the Virgin Mary, came into, the, came into our presence to bless us. But that is intimately tied with St. Stephen, his martyr, who gave up his life, who was stoned to death for that same Christ. So to bring that home even more, I'd like to read little section from the Office of Readings for today from St. Fulgentius of Rusp or Fulgentius of Ruspe. I'm not sure how to say that name. Either way, he has something beautiful to say about Christ and St. Stephen. Yesterday, we celebrated the birth in time of our eternal king. Today, we celebrate the triumphant suffering of his soldier. Yesterday, our king, clothed in his robe of flesh, left his place in the virgin's womb and graciously visited the world. 
Today, his soldier leaves the, grac- leaves the tabernacle of his body and goes triumphantly to heaven. Our king, despite his exalted majesty, came in humility for our sake, yet he did not come empty-handed. He brought his soldiers a great gift not only enriched, that not only enriched them, but also made them unconquerable in battle, for it was the gift of love which was to bring men to share in his divinity. He gave of his bounty, yet without any loss to himself. In a marvelous way he changed into wealth the poverty of his faithful followers, while remaining in full possession of his own inexhaustible riches. So, St. Fulgentius there beautifully ties together the love that Christ brings to us in his nativity with the same love, though in a different form, that St. Stephen exhibited by dying for the church and dying for that same Jesus who was born far before. So, hope this has been exemplifying to hear about. I always love the Feast of St. Stephen and preaching the octave of Christmas because it is something that, honestly, we're really bad at. Um, we have such a mentality of, you know, we spend forever looking forward to Christmas, but not in like the proper Advent way, like the, in the commercial way. It gets here, we're done, it's over, and then we then we're burned out by Christmas because we honestly did it all wrong. If we prepare for Christmas in Advent, in the humble expectation that the church provides for us, and then if we celebrate it in the proper liturgical and you know glorious octave sense that the church provides for us, if you do that, I guarantee you will not have the Christmas burnout. All of that exhaustion and tediousness and what have you and weariness, that's all from the worldly stuff that we feel obliged to do. But I beat this drum every year because what the church gives us is peaceful, joyful, beautiful, restful, exultant, happy, all the things we're looking for. It's all the worldly crap that makes us tired, miserable, angry, exhausted. So, you know, again, I know it's not the reality that that you can all drop what you're doing tomorrow and spend the next seven days just only going to church and recreating. I understand that. But work towards that, at least in a mental sense. At least keep the Christmas spirit, this sounds campy to say, but it's so true, but in a think of it in, in beyond the Hallmark sense. Keep the presence of Christ in, on a, in an authentic place in your hearts. Rest with him, pray with him, enjoy these celebrations, and you know, pray with the saint, St. Stephen, John the Evangelist, Holy Innocents, we have these wonderful days. Let them be present to you. And then, I am confident, it will be truly possible to rest in and enjoy this Christmas season.